Blog Talk Radio. Hello, please leave a message at Yeah, hi Barry. Um I'm getting a recording. Are are you around? Are you answering your phone? I'm gonna try dialing it one more time here. Um so hopefully it will ring through and you'll answer this time. Okay. Um Hi, Barry. It's Heather. Um, every time I try to call you from the studio line, uh, I get put through to voicemail. Okay, they're not robocalls. They're me. They're a 201 area code. Oh, you actually answered it. Okay. Okay, because I've seen this before where uh, the phones don't answer robocalls and they don't recognize the number that I'm calling from, and so they uh, send it directly to voicemail. So if you see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try calling again right now, um, and um, if you um, see the area code, it's 201. Or, I'm sorry, no, I don't know where I'm calling from. I actually don't know the area code. Um, okay, yeah, that's that's me. That's not a robocall. Okay, so let's hang up and I'll try. It's, it's dialing again. Um, hang up and, and grab that phone call because it's from New York. So. All right, thanks. Hi, Barry. Yes, we connected. Yay. <laughs> oh, this is so simple. Yeah. I, I know. <laughs> well, you know, I've had this happen before because, you know, we all program our phones to not take those robocalls and, you know, with, with limited success, I must say. Um, but for some reason, it works impeccably when I'm trying to call through from the New York number. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway. Okay, well, sorry for the glitches. Today must be a backward Thursday or something, but um, I think we're good to go. Are we are we good to go here for our conversation? Yeah, I think so. Okay, let me just then let's... let me just mention one thing. I don't think it'll happen, but if this phone, if something cuts off, it might be the phone battery. I don't think that will happen. If it does, like wait five minutes and call back, and I'll grab a different phone. But I don't think okay. that'll happen. All right. Um, okay. Yeah. You'll you'll have to uh, let me know the phone number, but I've got my email open. You can just email me the number. So, and that's no problem because I can just go back and editing, and we can make it all smooth. So, okay. All righty. Let's get going on a show and hope uh, keep our fingers crossed that you know that, that we've reached the end of our glitches. <laughs> so here okay. we go. In three. In three. Two. One.
Welcome. I'm Heather Stark. I'm your host for Three Women, Three Ways. We are a show that tackles some tough topics sometimes. And the topic that we're going to be discussing today is with our old friend Barry Goldstein. Barry, welcome to the show. Good to speak to you again, Heather. Barry has been very involved in domestic violence, women's issues, uh, sexual assault, and what I like to call just generalized social justice issues, uh, but particularly um, with some of the topics that we've covered on our show. And he's an expert in so many areas, and um, I, I, I once referred to him as an attorney. He's no longer an attorney. He said, I'm no longer an attorney. I'm just a nice guy, and uh, I'm here to attest that that's the case. He is a nice guy. I'm not sure we need the just in front of it. He's also very knowledgeable. And Barry wrote an article recently that caught my attention, which is why I've asked him to come on the show today. We all know about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and, you know, and I don't want to get into a huge political discussion. That's not what this is about. What this is about is what Barry um, parsed out to be, and right, rightly so, the, the U.S. response to sexual abuse and how it favors rapists and offenders. And I think a lot of us have felt that way, but not necessarily verbalized it. Barry, what brought you to this, this, to this conclusion, to come up with that concise statement, that concise thesis, which I think reflects exactly how many of us feel? Um, when I was away uh, about a month or two ago, I had a chance to read two books by New York Times reporters, um, one had to do with Brett Kavanaugh, and the other had to do with Harvey Weinstein. And one of the things I kept noticing when they were talking about Kavanaugh is that his supporters kept saying there's no corroboration, when in fact those of us who were familiar with sexual assault and domestic violence saw overwhelming corroboration. And I noticed that the, the fundamental difference was they were looking for a witness to the assault. And, of course, when we're talking about rape, normally you just have the rapist and the victim. And right. if they're defining corroboration to require um, a witness, then rapist will virtually always get away with their crimes, which is exactly what's happening in our country. And so we need to look for other things. You know, sometimes, yeah, obviously, there, there's DNA, but, you yeah. know, very often that's not available. Yeah. Um, and I think that when, you know, this, this hinging everything on corroboration, um, what you pointed out, obviously, is very true. This is a private crime. This is a crime that occurs without witnesses. But when it does have witnesses, you're talking about the fraternity brothers or you're talking about people who will not come forward to corroborate, even if they did see a crime commit. So requiring corroboration, I thought that went out the window decades ago. And yet it's still there, isn't it? That, that sense that we have, somebody has to have seen it. Somebody has to, you can't just take the woman's word for it. You just can't trust these women. You can't take their word for it. Clearly, we have to have somebody else who saw it who can say, yes, this did happen, or yes, this was, this was a, a bad thing, uh, or a crime, or a violent thing. Isn't it's, that, it's, didn't we get rid of all that years ago? Well, you know, there was a time when women weren't allowed to testify about someone raping them, um, and we're not much past that today. But, you know, just to be clear, you know, particularly in the context of a crime, you, know, you have to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, if you have, you know, the rapist says, I didn't do it, and the victim says he did, that may not eliminate a reasonable doubt. But very often there's other kinds of evidence that experts understand is strong corroboration, but society and the court system are not used to thinking of it in those ways. Yeah. 
how do we deal with that? I mean, how do the courts deal with that when almost every other crime has to have some sort of corroboration, some sort of witness, um, even though the studies show witnesses are highly unreliable anyway, but, but it seems like so many court cases are hinged on that. But then we come here where it's a, a, a not visible crime except to the parties that are, are involved in it. How do the courts deal with that? Well, as, as you know, in my article, I gave two <coughs> personal examples of cases I was involved in where it was one-on-one and there was no problem in one case getting a conviction and in the other um, getting an order of protection. So it, it is possible from the context, from you know the demeanor of the witness, et cetera, to have strong uh, evidence. Another thing that I think um, prosecutors should do much more often is to use expert witnesses, because very often normal responses from victims are misunderstood by the jury. And so, you know, lots of times true reports can be disbelieved. And, of course, the biggest problem... (coughs) as you mentioned, is that there is this myth that women frequently make false reports, and that's just not true. No. The studies that I've read and the studies that are commonly referred to show that, that yeah, some people lie. You know, I mean, whether they're male or female, sometimes people lie. But the studies are pretty consistent in saying that's probably less than 2%. And it's the same for men and for women about lying or making false reports. So the notion that somehow or other we have to automatically assume that any report by a woman is false, it's been disproven. It's been disproven by the research. And yes, I I think that's prejudice, isn't there? Heather, I would say something different. Um, absolutely women, you know, when it comes to abuse issues, rarely lie. That's not as true about men. And I think there's two points that I would make that I think are really important. The first is it is far more common for an offender to lie about his assault for obvious reasons, and yet we tend to give you know, the alleged criminal, even when there's strong evidence or even a past history, we are much less skeptical of the offender than of the victim. And the other thing, which applies more to domestic violence and child custody, is that in the context of contested custody cases, the Ballas study found that fathers we're 16 times more likely to make deliberate false reports than the mothers. And again, that's something that even professionals who ought to be familiar with that don't. And so you have a situation where professionals are more skeptical about reports by women that are rarely false than by about reports by men that are much more likely to be false. Yeah. Which report did you say that was? Who did that report? That's the Ballas study, and it was, um, you know, cited repeatedly in the Saunders study. Okay, yeah, all right. Um, Okay, I'm going to check that out. Um, The. So what we're dealing with, and you know, years ago, Barry, I used to do a lot of talks uh, about the courts and uh, to just community groups, and you know, sometimes groups of psychologists, and and I would always say that you know, it seems to me, as a layperson, that the courts operate under three principles. One is that every father has to be in every child's life for that child's well-being that even if a father hurts the mother, that doesn't impact the child, and so fathers have a right to that to their, their property, i.e. the child. And the third premise they seem to operate under is she lies. She lies. 
it just seems to be endemic. And I think that's a cultural thing, isn't it? I mean, don't we, I mean, I've been to, to parties where the assumption is that, that whatever the woman says is just kind of fudged or a lie or a stretch of the truth. I think that our culture just kind of, it's one of those little hidden prejudices that we don't talk about a lot, I think. Am I off base here or do you see that as well? No, I would I would agree with everything you say. You know, certainly we live in a sexist society. And the other thing, which is a, a broader part of the problem, is that because we're in a sexist society, when women speak, people tend to focus more on their dress, their appearance, their beauty, their body parts. And to the extent that they're doing that, they're not focusing on the substance of what they're saying. And that gives men a huge unearned advantage over women, even in situations that have nothing to do with, you know, sexual assault or domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when it comes to sexual assault or domestic violence, I mean, it just, it's the repercussions of that are so much stronger. Absolutely. Yeah. And the harm, uh, the harm from domestic violence and sexual assault is far greater than I think we understand and really, you know, holds back our society in horrific ways. I mean, there's a, a bigger story, for instance, the life expectancy in the United States has been going up for, you know, probably 100 and more more years, and recently that stopped. And, you know, I I heard various uh, explanations that are probably part of the explanation, but the fact is, if we paid more attention to preventing sexual assault and child abuse and domestic violence, that life expectancy would go up, you know, probably at least a few years. And, you know, we would save an enormous amount of money in terms of um, health care costs. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard to document these things, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think the problem is that we tend to want to look at each case separately and we miss the patterns. One of the things, one of the reasons that domestic violence professionals and and sexual abuse experts have that expertise is that they look for patterns and they see things that are going on, you know, in across the board and it makes it easier for them to recognize. Whereas court um, legal professionals are taught to look at each issue, each case separately, and they're missing the patterns. And so very often we find courts making decisions or findings that are extremely rare. And they could be right in an individual case, but you could not possibly have the, these rare occurrences as often as the courts are finding them, which tells us that the courts are using really flawed practices and that the flawed practices are helping rapists and helping domestic violence offenders and hurting women and children. You make an argument about how the court, and and I'm not sure if this is a constitutional thing or or not, but the presumption of innocence in criminal cases. How did that presumption of innocence develop? How How did we get there? And why is that something we need to be looking at in sexual assault cases? Well, you know, fundamental constitutional right um, is that you shouldn't be put in jail unless they can prove a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, that you have a presumption of innocence. And that's really important to our way of government, you know, because obviously there are countries that don't believe in that, and the violations are really horrific. Um, What... One of the things that goes wrong, though, is that very routinely we apply the same criminal standards 
to civil cases. You want to err on the side of keeping an innocent person out of jail, and so you require a higher standard of proof before you convict someone of a crime. But if you're talking about should that person um, have a protective order you know, to limit him from hurting his victim again, or if we're talking about should that person have child custody, you don't want to err on the side of risking children or risking the lives of partners. You want to err on the side of protecting them. And very often we miss that. Um, one of the things I found really interesting in the book about Kavanaugh is it quoted Senator Susan Collins, and she said Kavanaugh is entitled to the presumption of innocence. And that sounded so reasonable, I don't think anyone challenged it, including in the book. But what I saw is, if he was on trial for the rape that he allegedly committed, then absolutely he's entitled to a presumption of innocence. But if he's in a job interview to determine whether he should be on the Supreme Court, you know, if there's some chance that he committed a crime like that, he should not be considered. The presumption should be in the other direction. You know, he has no constitutional right to be a Supreme Court justice. There are, you know, many other men and women who are at least disqualified, who are not potential sex offenders. We can do better because the Supreme Court justice should be based on what's best for the country, not based on some right that Kavanaugh has. He has no right to be on the Supreme Court. And that was never discussed. Yeah. I think that, you know, we see this a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, where we have this um, these rules that apply that seem to defy logic. I'm thinking of child custody, for example. Um, I've had a family court judge say directly to me that, uh, you know, in, in, in cases in family court of custody, if the abuser is well put together and under control and the woman is kind of frantic and can't, you know, can't even pull herself together, those were the terms that were used for me, then, of course, if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we're going to give custody to the father. I, I just am gobsmacked by that. I, I have, I'm sorry, I haven't heard a judge say that. I've heard judges do that very frequently. And interestingly... Yeah, a Denver family court judge said that to me uh, when I was interviewing her for the show. She did not say it on air. She said it off air. Um, but she said that directly to me. Well, the Saunders study specifically found that courts are placing way too much importance on mothers' anger and emotion all out of proportion to what it says about their parenting ability. And this is yeah. one very common example of gender bias, you know, because it's based on uh, gender myths and stereotypes. Well, and when you were talking earlier about, you know, placing the victim and, uh, when you were saying that it needs to be placed in context and the demeanor of the witnesses, et cetera, et cetera, I get nervous when we talk about demeanor because we see that so often in domestic violence cases where the woman is either terrified out of her mind or if she's not terrified out of her mind and she comes across as cool and collected, then there's something wrong with her because she's cool and collected under these circumstances. Um, that that whole notion of judging demeanor is a little slippery for me. Um, but you think that, I mean, you, you make the argument that it, it should be considered. Well, remember, you know, I also said that we should have uh, experts testify because experts can explain, you know, the reactions. Just one common example is that when children are repeatedly interviewed um, about reports of child sexual abuse, 
after a while they you know talk in a rote way that's sort of a normal response and uneducated professionals often treat that as proof that they were coached and an expert could explain that um but you know one of the stories i told in this article was about a 15 year old girl whose father had sexually abused her and um, her mother was seeking a protective order for her and she told her story of what the father did and um, how it impacted her and when she was finished the judge and I can tell you that judge was not you know a pro-feminist kind of judge he usually ruled the wrong way but when she finished testifying the judge said there is no way we're going to leave without you having a protective order. I mean, the the emotion, the you know, the feelings, etc. There was no way that could have been made up. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that, though, and I'm I'm glad you know that the judge was sensitive enough to get that. But the problem with that is, is what if you have a person whose demeanor, who doesn't handle stress in that way, she handles it by shutting down. And then you've got a judge who thinks, well, she wasn't that impacted by it, so clearly it wasn't that big of a deal. And, you know, I, I mean, I just, you know, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, but, uh, you know, that, that whole notion of, um, I mean, I, I don't think that we should disregard demeanor, but I, I, I worry that it's a little slippery for people, as you said, who are making the decisions, who are not experts, and who might not recognize that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why you would call an expert to explain, you know, if you have a wit, you know, the witness or the victim who is reacting that way, it makes it really important to bring on uh, an expert witness who can be asked about the victim's reaction. Yeah, yeah. Um, the problem with the, and I'm again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I'm not challenging him. I'm just trying to get more information out. Um, the problem with those experts is that not all the experts are particularly expert. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, we see Absolutely. In- but what that really goes to, which is based on Saunders, is that I'm talking about experts in domestic violence, experts in child sexual abuse, and what the courts are used to using are experts in psychology and mental illness who rarely also have expertise in domestic violence or child sexual abuse. So it is very common, as you're suggesting, that courts, particularly in child custody cases, are using the wrong experts. Yeah. So is that, would that be a problem? I mean, do, how, how can you make the courts get the right experts? Well, Heather, keep in mind, we're jumping around to different cases. You know, we were talking about custody, talking about um, rape, we're talking about criminal, um, you know, and so there are different standards and, you know, different things that you need to do. Um, You know, the biggest problem in terms of experts is in the child custody field where what happened you know, 30, 40 years ago when domestic violence first became a public issue, as you've heard me say many times, there was no research, and the courts used popular assumptions that domestic violence was caused by mental illness or substance abuse, and they turned to mental health professionals. And these people Mm -hmm. have expertise in some areas that are helpful. They are not experts in domestic violence. They are not experts in child sexual abuse. And that's why so often they get those wrong. I mean, I've read so many, you know, evaluations where the evaluator, acting in perfect good faith, you know, talks a little bit about the alleged domestic violence, can't figure it out because they have no expertise, don't know what to look for, and focuses on other less important issues. And, you know, so you don't get, you know, so what happens is domestic violence is minimized and denied, and the children aren't protected. But I think we're, in terms of using the expert witnesses, you know, we were talking really about criminal cases where a victim's demeanor or, you know, the, what, what's corroboration um, isn't understood by the general public or even professionals who are an expert in that, and an expert witness could be really helpful.
in the sexual assault cases, um, who are the experts? Who could the um, judges call as expert witnesses? Um, you know, people in rape crisis centers, um, people who do, you know, forensics and interviews and stuff like that, but who focus on um, victims of child sexual abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you, well, no, I'm going to go back to your article here a little bit because you're right, we're wandering. And, you know, that's how my mind is working today. I'm very random today, so bear with me if you would. One of the things that I want to talk about is why the connection between lack of reporting the crime of sexual assault and sexual abuse and our social attitude toward it and the way the courts handle it. This is a a problem, is it not? I mean, we hear about women and children, uh, so many who are assaulted, and yet they never report, they never get any kind of treatment, they just carry that with them forever, there's never any kind of justice. There are some people that I've actually talked to who, who say that's not a bad thing. You just, why do you have to do all this stuff? Why do you have to trot it out? Why do you have to talk about it? Just put it away and move on. And yet, well, that's not really, about, really advisable, is it? Well, we're talking about two separate things. Well, one is, you know, a, an individual victim has to understand or has to think about what's best for her in recovering. And what's best for her may or may not be what's best for society. And, you know, we have to understand that. I mean, the woman who's been raped, you know, is traumatized, you know, continues to be in some danger. And, you know, she needs to figure out the best way to recover. But society, when they develop policies and practices, needs to figure out how to discourage these heinous crimes. And we are doing a really horrible job. We're doing a horrible job of preventing the rape and sexual assault of women, and we're doing a horrible job in preventing sexual assault of children. And that really ought to be a much greater priority. You know, there are a few things that are more important in our society than preventing that, and we can. And I think part of what I was saying in the article is that when law enforcement and lawyers and judges tend to disbelieve victims, when we have a system where, you know, almost every rapist gets away with it, um, that encourages men to continue committing rape because there's a good chance they'll get away with it. And it discourages victims from reporting because, you know, they often will be re-traumatized by, you know, the official response to their reports. And it also, of course, means that the rapists are on the street and available to harm still more people. So we need to change that. Yeah. Changing courts, saying it is very easy, but it's not an easy thing to do, is it? Um, (laughs) Courts seem to be particularly entrenched in in the way they operate, the ways they operate. But you mention that there are some court districts, some jurisdictions that have actually created gender bias committees. How how often, how frequent is that? I mean, that's really hopeful to me. Um, Can you talk more about the gender bias committees that some court districts are are working with now? Um, Yes, and it's the good news is it's very widespread, and the bad news is it hasn't made a big difference. Um, oh. 40 states and many judicial districts have created, and listen to this, court-sponsored gender bias committees. So this is the courts trying to do this. And this started like in the 80s and has continued on. And they have found widespread bias against women. Um, And 
one of the things that's so difficult about gender bias is it's, for the most part, it's not intentional. It's often subconscious. It's often based on myths and stereotypes. And so the people who are doing it, which includes women, um, don't realize they're doing it. But if you were to tell a judge, hey, you know, what you just said or did is, you know, biased against women, you know, you're endangering yourself because there's a, you know, you're going to get a defensive reaction and quite possibly retaliation, which means that attorneys and litigants are afraid to raise the issue. And, you know, the courts have not responded to these findings by creating training and, you know, trying to encourage reports. And so we really haven't made any progress. And the new study that I know you're familiar with by Joan Meyer confirms that we have made very little progress with respect to gender bias. And it gives men a huge advantage. And and I suppose, you know, considering that there's so much bias against women just in our society in, in all parts, not surprising that there'd be gender bias in the courts. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, it just, it's so endemic, and oftentimes people don't see it. Sometimes I don't see it, and I, I think I'm pretty aware of these things. Um, but it's just so, you know, when you talk about these committees being in, in effect in some places since the 80s, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Do you think, and this is a bit of an aside, if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine, but do you think the hashtag MeToo movement had any impact in moving some of this, this the way things are done here? Um, I think it's been helpful. I, I think it hasn't been enough. Um, you know, I mean, think about it. There have been, you know, um, scandals and, you know, attempts to deal with, Things like the Catholic Church sex scandal, the Boy Scouts, the Olympic athletes, uh, sex assaults in the military, on college campuses, um, and the Me Too movement to me is part of that broader um, pattern. What I haven't seen yet and what I keep waiting for is when are we going to say that it's not acceptable for a quarter of our children to be sexually assaulted? And when are we going to deal with the problems in the custody court system? And I think all of the things I just mentioned are interconnected. They're all based on, you know, gendered crimes that overwhelmingly are committed against women and children. And we need to take all of these things far more seriously, which I think is really the thrust Um, of my article, and I think we need to talk about this and start thinking about doing something. You know, and, you know, the court system, for the most part, doesn't even know there's a problem. You know, we know it's a problem. You know, I appreciate you inviting me on your show because it's a chance to talk about this and hopefully get someone to notice who can do something about it that this ought to be intolerable. And I think when I, I have a list of ideas of how to change this, and the first thing is that we really have to take these crimes more seriously, make it a priority to prevent it. And that ought to be, you know, a hundred to nothing. You know, you know, who wants to support rapists and abusers? Um, but right now, they're the ones that are favored. Why are we doing that? Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing dynamic. You will have people say, well, because we have because of this assumption of false reporting. Um, and that's a very strong, I mean, I, I speak with a lot of men about things, and and they really do. They They kind of think, well, you know, yeah, she said this, but, she said this, but. 
and I don't know whether it's a defensive mechanism because these are men who would not, you know, are, are not committing gendered crimes. They're not men who would support rapists. And yet there's that little thing in their brains that, yeah, well, she just said that for either some sort of control or some sort of power or some sort of vindictiveness or whatever. I'm always kind of shocked by how there's that little kernel in, in, in their brains that that would be the case, that somehow or other this woman would just be saying it just because, for whatever reason. Um, and yet it's there. I see it. So we do operate, I think, normal folks who, don't, who are not normally exposed to the courts, who are not normally involved in sexual assault or gendered violence, uh, it, there's still that little kernel of, well, you kind of have to question this. And I don't know how you get past that. I mean, courts can have gendered bias committees that look at things, and we can come up with studies. And But how do you get past that little kernel that seems to be in so many men's brains, and maybe women's too. I've, I've noticed it more in, in the men that I've spoken with. How do you get past that? Well, you know, you you and I have talked about some communities that develop responses to prevent domestic violence. And basically what they did is they took it more seriously and they were successful and they reduced the crime and best of all, they reduced the murders. Um, so we know that it can be done. But what was interesting in those communities is that there was always one or a group of leaders who helped bring that program to fruition and, you know, got it moving. And and I think we need, you know, leadership. I mean, you know, right now, you know, we're getting ready for a presidential election and there's, you know, there's a million of other issues, probably not a lot of issues more um, basic than, you know, let's stop domestic violence and sexual assault. And, you know, what would happen if one of the candidates suddenly said, hey, that's going to be a priority for me. Do you think he would get elected, he or she would get elected, if that was what they were running on as one of their primary things? Do you think our, our culture would go yay, or do you think our the voter, the bulk of the voters would kind of go, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know? Um, well, I mean, obviously, you can't just say it, you need to have something backing it up and all of that. But, I mean, if it was presented in a good way, I think it would be a plus. I mean, nobody can say, hey, I'm in favor of rapists. Um, yeah. You know, what would really be good is if by one starting it, that all the other candidates um, felt the need to have their own programs to stop this. And so we really had a discussion about, what is a really important issue. Mm -hmm. Do you see a difference um, between, and I'm talking, and again, this is a random question. For some reason, my brain is working randomly today. Um, and if you don't have an opinion about it, just that's fine. But do you see a difference in our female candidates and our male candidates when it comes to these kinds of issues? Is there a huge divide there, or, or are you seeing women standing up and, and waving the banner for change required in some of these areas and not men, or is it 50-50? What, what is your observation when you're looking at the people who are running for national political office right now? Well, you know, Heather, I, I actually am working on another article um, about my history, and, you know, I grew up, obviously, in a sexist society, and I had the same beliefs and biases that most guys did, not much more, not much less, just, you know, I had typical sexist beliefs, you know, and I think it's fair to say that those beliefs were normal. And when I first got on the board of a battered women's shelter, you know, what I started to do was to keep my mouth shut and to listen to women. And that's the only way I got more smart. And it's something, you know, the point is, I think, that women 
have much more experience of what it's like to live in a sexist society. It impacts their lives um, in ways that men can be oblivious to. And so I think women candidates are more likely to recognize the problem, to have a sense of, you know, not minimizing the harm that this does. And and certainly there are male candidates that are supportive, you know, but I, I, I think it's there there is a difference because men don't live in a society where they have to think about where they're gonna go, what they're gonna do in terms of do they have to guard against being sexually assaulted? And that makes a big difference. And, you know, men just don't think of it in those terms. Yeah, they don't. I remember talking with my son years ago about the the common practice of women getting up and going to the bathroom at the same time. You'd have, you'd be in a restaurant or you'd be at a party and two women would say, I'm going to the restroom, boom, and they two would go. And my son, who was a young teenager at the time, said, that's so creepy. Why do girls always go to the bathroom together? And I said, well, the basic cause is because, you know, that assumption that you're not necessarily safe going by yourself. That's just kind of an underlying, even if you don't verbalize it, even if you don't think about it, that's kind of the underlying message that we give young girls, you know. Don't go here by yourself. Don't go there by yourself. And having raised a daughter, I I said the same thing. You know, you don't. I don't want my daughter. Of course, I didn't want my son out. You know, on First Avenue in the middle of the night either. You know, so I mean, I wasn't that different in my expectations for my two children. Um, but the assumption, as you're pointing out, um, women have to do things differently, and it's 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 bred into us from you know toddlerhood, uh, and it's all based on that safety assumption. I think. Uh, and men don't don't see that. Men aren't raised that way. Men don't worry about, oh gosh, something could happen to me if I'm going to the bar alone, you know. And and uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a little bit different now, but than it was years ago. But it's still there. It's still there. Women tend to to go more places in in groups or in pairs. And I think that, you know, the the etiology of that is that you know the the safety issue of not being a, a woman alone. Um, so, yeah, men don't get that. They, they've they never had that. And, and that's one example. If something happens to, I don't want to say that, if a man assaults a woman, right away the issue is what did she do wrong, what's wrong with her, instead of yep. what's wrong with the assaulter. Yeah, exactly. You know, why was she, why was she there? You know, why was she wearing that? I don't, we, I, we don't hear that so much anymore, the why was she wearing that, you know, but... Um, yeah, it, it's just, it always comes, comes back to that. And so your notion that, you know, the, the expectations and the way of living for women is different than it is for men, just based on safety issues. Um, and, and men oftentimes don't, they just don't get it. They, they, they haven't been raised that way. Um, and, and again, that's just one small example of the differences. So, you know, I mean, it, it's obvious why we should be having these issues. I mean, men are the ones who still, you know, for a large part control the courts and the court systems. And, you know, if they don't see the need for some sort of behavior, it just seems random and odd to them, then they're going to rule or think or argue against, a, you know, a certain way and not get it, which comes back to your whole idea of getting, you know, um, um, getting courts aware. Uh, and I'm really, I, I really wish there was something that we could all do about that. You know, one of my big issues is when many areas we vote for judges and most of us do not have a clue about the qualifications for that judge. I mean, we get, we see the, the recommendations of the bar associations and we see, you know, that all that kind of stuff, but that doesn't tell us how this judge behaves on the bench or his assumptions about the people who come before him on the bench. I wish there was some way that we could bring that out so that voters who have to vote for judges have a real basis for understanding who they're voting for or voting, you know, not voting for. Um, and I think this is a, an area where that would be really helpful 
You know, is this guy a misogynist? Is this guy somebody who gets it a little bit? You know, where can we find out about that stuff, you know, when we're faced with having to vote for a decision maker like this? I guess we could apply that to to everything um, that we get to vote on. Uh, Again, being random here. You know, Barry, I think it's important because we've been talking a lot about what's happening. I think it's important that we talk about why it's important to solve this. And then I want to spend a few minutes because you came up with some ideas in your article about how it could be solved. So, but let's take a few minutes to talk about why this is so significant. We know 25% of our, our children will be sexually assaulted and nobody talks too much about that. What are some of the other reasons that people need to hear for why this is an important issue that we're talking about today? Um, you know, it certainly means many women never reach their full potential because of sexual assault or domestic violence. And that's a huge loss to our society. And, you know, we, you know, we don't know what we're missing, so it doesn't get considered. Um, you know, the biggest reason, and, you know, so often, you know, I wind up having to write stories, you know, of just horrific tragedies, or I'm, you know, working with women in the custody cases who have been horrifically mistreated by their abusers, and then the courts mistreat them again. And, you know, the the pain and the suffering that women go through and children go through because we're doing such a poor job, you know, it's really horrendous. You know, there's, you know, I keep trying to find words to to describe it. And as a man, it's a lot harder to to help others understand, you know. Um, You know, I I sometimes in the batterer class, we do, um, um, you know, it's like a line of, a a continuum of respectful behavior all the way to domestic violence. And, you know, we like to say that you can't go any further in terms of the worst abuse being murder and rape is, you know, near, near that. And, you know, I, I am aware in my mind that for some victims, rape is worse than murder. And I, you know, couldn't possibly make you know, a case for one way or the other, only the victim can. But I think that says something about just how horrible the experience is. And I think it's something that we're missing. Yeah. You know, your point about losing that potential. Um, you know, I don't talk about it very much, but I've had, you know, my share of um, stuff that I've had to live through. And I think I'm doing very well. And I think I'm content with my life. I think I'm doing as much as I can do. I hope to do more. And I'm working toward doing more. But every now and then, a little part of my brain thinks, if I hadn't had this, what could I have been? What could I have done? That comment... um, Make makes you know really resonates with me, Barry. You know the lost potential of women who have experienced these kinds of things. It's huge. You, you know, there's a an episode of Mash where a sergeant comes in who's really racist, and he says, "You know, don't give me the wrong kind of blood." He's afraid that he's going to. Um, into a black person and the doctors decide to teach him a lesson in a good way and they put something on his skin that he wakes up black and it, you know learns something and they explain that the reason they did that was that there was a black doctor who invented the procedure to um, separate plasma and it was a procedure that you know saved millions of lives and, you know, he was in an accident, and 
they took him to a hospital that was for whites only, and they wouldn't treat him, so they had to get him to a, a black hospital, and by that time he died. And here was someone who already had invented a process to save millions of lives. Who knows what else he might have done if he had lived. And that's the kind of thing that we're missing, and, and we can't imagine it in big and small ways. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. That lost potential and lost for what reason, you know? Um, I mean, it's one thing if, you know, there's some global reason that you have to go through some sort of trauma or hardship, but it's another thing if you uh, have to do it because of somebody's criminal behavior or selfish behavior, I guess. Um, Anyway, yeah, I think that's huge. Um, We need to solve this problem, Barry. And you've talked about ways we might approach some solutions to this. Could you go, could you share some of those with us? Um, Well, I mean, some of the things we've talked about, you know, we need to make it a priority. Um, You know, certainly prosecutors, um, you know, we, we see how they, um, lots of times the rape kits aren't used. Um, Lots of times police and prosecutors will interview victims in ways that discourages reports. And, you know, we need to stop doing that. Um, You know, we've sometimes talked about the Quincy solution, uh, which had a bunch of good practices to prevent domestic violence, one of the things they did was a special office in the prosecutor's office um, to, to prosecute um, child sexual abuse crimes, particularly incest, because today our society only treats sexual abuse of children seriously when it's committed by a stranger. And when it's committed by someone who the child knows, particularly a close relative, the courts are using reunification rather than prosecution and uh, uh, protecting the child. And that's one of the big problems within the, you know, custody court system. Um, We, you know... Obviously, we need you know laws to take things seriously. We need to think about um, criminal protections not applying to non-criminal cases or situations. You know, the um, protections for a defendant don't apply to the criminal justice system. They don't apply to the general public. So if your next door neighbor is charged with sexually abusing children, you don't have to say, well, he's innocent until proven guilty, so I'm going to let my children play there. We wouldn't think of doing that, but that's kind of the attitude. Um, You know, it's pretty common. Um, So, I mean, those are some, but I think the biggest thing is we need some leadership and we need both federally and locally to make this a priority, you know, to really be, just as there have been campaigns against sexual assault in the military, sexual assault on college campuses, we need to broaden that, that it ought to be a a priority in this country to prevent sexual assault and to prevent domestic violence. And I think one one of the things I talked about in the article was the media, you know, both how they portray um, sexual assault and domestic violence, and they, they sort of sensationalize the crime, and they don't focus on what the aftermath is, which, you know, would be 
you know, much better in terms of learning about it. Um, but that one of the things I would like to see is, um, you know, commercials, uh, you know, where you provide free commercials, um, you know, to help society. And just as the insurance industry has their own commercials about how we pay for insurance fraud, and of course they have an interest in doing that, we should talk about the fact that we all pay for allowing rapists and abusers to get away with their crimes. You know, the, the fact is that the United States spends over a trillion dollars to allow men to abuse their partners. And if we added sexual assault, it would probably be a few trillion dollars. That's going to be like several thousand dollars a year for each person. You know, I'm sure we can all do a lot better things with it than let rapists and abusers commit their crimes. And obviously it's not realistic to eliminate it totally, but we could substantially reduce it and save a big chunk of money that could be used for so many better things. And to educate the public about how common it is for rapists and abusers to get away with their crimes and that that's not inevitable, I think would be helpful. And what we also have to, uh, you know, teach people is that, you know, the myth that women and children frequently make false reports really contributes to the tolerance for rape and sexual assault. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the other things that you mentioned, which I found interesting, is statutes of limitations. Um, our state just recently passed a, a, a change in the statute of limitations for child uh, sexual assault uh, and expanded that, um, which was wonderful. But a lot of states still have statutes of limitations that limits both civil and criminal um, consequences for sexual abuse cases. How common is that, and how big of a problem is is that statute of limitations issue? Um, you know, Heather, as you know, um, I work with the Stop Abuse Campaign, and statute of limitation reform has been one of their leading causes. And um, we're based in New York, and New York is one state that also recently passed that. Um, and, and it's really important um, because it's not just that victims can collect money from others. Um, it's also that typically child victims have difficulty remembering and you know talking about it for, until decades later. And so when we artificially limit, you know, lawsuits, it means that sexual assaulters, rapists, are more likely to get away with their crimes and therefore more likely to commit them. And, and that's really, you know, important. And, of course, it undermines the message we're trying to send that this is not taught to be tolerated. So it's crucial to try and get legislators legislators to um, back up the notion of changing the statutes of limitation. And again, I think that all goes back to you know the the case, the very compelling case that you made for getting experts involved, people who work with this, people who see this, people who understand it know that sometimes it takes years to process this before people can go ahead. So we need to get more information out there. We need to get the experts who understand this out there, and we need to communicate. But I guess we could say that about just about everything, couldn't we, Barry? Um, <laughs> we, I'm looking at our clock, and I'm going, gosh, no. If you are interested, and I hope you are, in reading the article that Barry wrote, Barry, how do they access that article, The U.S. Response to Sexual Abuse Favors Rapists? Well, you can find it um, at the Stop Abuse Campaign 
on the blog. You can find it there. Um, I posted it on some of my Facebook pages, which would include the NOMAS pages and Stop Abuse Campaign Action Committee um, and mm-hmm. my personal um, uh, Facebook page. Um, so I, th- okay. I think I think you'll be able to find it. Okay, stopabusecampaign.org. And it's right there. And I always go there. They have some wonderful information. Barry, thank you so much for coming on again and talking with me. Sorry, I was kind of all over the board today. It's one of those days for me. But you uh, you held us together admirably. Thank you for the work you do. And thank you for being on, a, on the show with us on Three Women, Three Ways. Until next time. Thank you, Barry. Okay. I, I always enjoy speaking with you. Oh, I'm sorry. I was I was really random today. I'm I I think I'm I've got I've kind of got chills. I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, it's cold. I've got a headache, and I'm thinking, ah, gosh, I think I'm probably coming down to something. So I wasn't at my most uh, cute. I I can help you with that. Monday, I'm yes. Monday, I'm leaving for Hawaii. Oh, don't you feel better already? Well, you know, I took I, I came back last week from uh, a week in Tuscany, and although I love my little trips, invariably you catch something on those darned airplanes, don't you? I mean, invariably. Um, so there, there you go. But yeah, I just came back from a week in Tuscany. That was kind of kind of fun. Uh, I got a rental car, and for some reason, I, I seem to kind of specialize in driving around other countries like an idiot. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll tell you that the Italian drivers are quite interesting, very interesting. But, um, yeah, but that was fun. So you're going to stay in Kauai, I believe, I've read on your Facebook. Is that where you go? Um, I'm going to be in Kona and for a um, – Kona. Kona. I'm, te- I'm oh. going to be testifying in a case. Oh, oh so it's not – it's business too, yeah. Well, may, hopefully you can find time to relax and unwind while you're there too. Um, hopefully, we're not going to have too much time, but it'd be nice to hit the hot tub. I don't think I'm going to have time for the beach, but we shall see. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, and again, thank you so much for the work you do, Barry. I, I'm always, I'm always excited when I see a new article by you, because <laughs> I know it's going to teach me something. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Have have a good time in Kona, and uh, next time you come out with an article, I'll be in touch again. Okay. 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 All right. Thanks, baby. Bye bye.